Good morning, all. Good to be with you today. So as I was thinking about this passage, which talks about a wedding banquet, I counted uh, how many weddings I've been to lately, because it seemed like a lot. And I, I've been to 13 uh, weddings, or seven weddings in the past 13 months. Uh, not 13 weddings, that would have been crazy. Um, but seven still felt like quite a lot for me. Sort of a, a COVID backup, I think. A lot of them sort of scrunched together. Uh, but anyway, I found that, that when it came time to go to the reception at, at each of these weddings, I, I, would, I would find myself wondering, even, even just a little bit, maybe in the back of my mind, where, where will I be seated? Uh, what table did they put me at? Will it, be, will it be one of the cool tables? One of the fun tables? You know, a place of honor? Or, or a quiet table tucked in the corner, far away from the action? It seems that in life, we, we always want a good seat, right? Whether figuratively or, or literally. We want to feel important. We want to be admired, recognized, respected to be associated with, with the right people. Perhaps we, we want more likes and followers on, on our social media. And it seems that the things were not all that different in Jesus' day. We just heard in the gospel that, that on one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal, he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor. It seems that, that some people dedicate their lives to this pursuit of having the best seat, to climbing the social ladder. All of us, to, to one degree or another, have been formed by, by a culture of competition and hierarchy. And this tends to make us very status conscious and, and uh, a little bit self-centered. Our place in the hierarchy, our seat at the table, after all, uh, can become the measure of our self-worth, can come to define our identity. The Franciscan priest and teacher, Richard Rohr, once said that, that maybe culture could even be defined as attempts to earn worthiness or to validate the self by some extrinsic or, or outside measure. He goes on to call this a dead-end mentality. A dead-end, because it seems that no matter how high we climb, how much money is in the bank, how large the house, how many parties we get invited to, how many likes and follows we might get, it's never enough. It's because there, there's always somebody who's higher up, somebody who has more, who has bigger, better, more likes, more follows. Besides this, it seems that this self-centered, egoistic way of living can never really fulfill us because enough is never enough. If we live this way, we, we might find ourselves starved, searching for a fulfillment that, that is always out of reach. I believe that what we are truly hungry for is communion, deep connection. 
But when we turn in on ourselves, when we focus too much on ourselves, we, we tend to turn away from others and from God and, and from life itself. And, of course, there's really no connection there. So it turns out that seeking approval, status, and superficial social connections can actually make us quite lonely, can leave us feeling rather empty. Or in the words of the prophet Bob Marley, the destruction of the poor is is in their poverty, but the destruction of the soul is vanity. And it's not just our souls that suffer from pride and vanity. Our relationships often suffer as, as we tend to neglect or even hurt the people who are close to us. The poor suffer as we take more for ourselves and share less with those who are in need. And the natural world, the environment, suffers as our planet bears the heavier and heavier burden of our excessive consumption. And this, I think, has a lot to do with why Jesus warns against this way of self-seeking and self-assertion. He says, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. I don't think he says this to shame us or to frighten us. Jesus does not want to judge us. He wants to set us free. And he calls us to humility because that is the way to freedom. Almost 1,500 years ago, in a town in central Italy, a man we know as St. Benedict set out to follow Jesus on this path of humility. He was born into a good family and sent to Roman schools, but, but he was disenchanted by the decadence he found in Roman society. So what did he do? He took off. He just left civilization. Pretty bold. He went to go live in the hills. Eventually, he ended up living in a cave. Later, he was persuaded by some others to become the leader of a community of monks. And and for this, he wrote a rule of life, sort of a handbook for living that we call the Rule of St. Benedict. Now, it is one of the most influential texts in all of Western religious life and spirituality. According to Peter Walsh, who was an associate rector here about 20 years ago, the Rule of St. Benedict contains the very first 12-step program. But it's not really about breaking an addiction to a substance as much as it is about breaking our addiction to ourselves. And don't we live in a society that is addicted to the self? The Benedictine nun Joan Chittister wrote this wonderful book on the rule of Benedict. And in it, she writes that if the modern age has lost anything that needs to be rediscovered, if the Western world has denied anything that needs to be owned, if individuals have rejected anything that needs to be professed again, if the preservation of the globe in the 21st century requires anything of the past at all, it may well be the commitment of the rule of Benedict to humility. 
Benedict outlined 12 steps or 12 degrees of humility. And these 12 steps form a ladder. He compares it with Jacob's ladder from the book of Genesis. And it's a ladder that we climb not by going up, but by going down. It's an upside-down, inverted ladder. And the, the lower we go, paradoxically, the higher we go in holiness and closeness to God. It's a way of unlearning the confusion, selfishness, frustration, and fear that is imprinted on so many of us by our culture. The 12 steps are, uh, and this is uh, adapted somewhat for modern life outside of a monastery, uh, with a lot of help from Sister Joan here. Uh, step one, remember that we are always in the presence of God. Two, seek to do God's will rather than our own. Three, to listen to the words, direction, and insight of others. Four, to persevere amid challenges and disappointments. Five, to acknowledge our failures and our, our weaknesses to ourselves and, and to others who we can trust. Six, to just quit climbing the social ladder and to be content with who we are and what we have. Seven, to become aware of our own littleness, our, our smallness, to stop regarding ourselves as better than others. Eight, to follow the wisdom of good teachers and traditions. Nine, to become comfortable with silence. Ten, to not laugh at the expense of others, to not ridicule others. Eleven, speak gently briefly, reasonably. And 12, to learn to regard ourselves as God regards us. Benedict taught that this ladder of humility leads to the perfect love of God and freedom from fear. Freedom from fear because when we drop the posturing, the endless competition and comparison when we're released from the prison of our egotism, when we're no longer fighting with reality, but instead accepting our place in it, and when we surrender to the will and to the love of God, we might find that we have something that can never be taken away. The light, love, and life of God dwelling in us and flowing through us. Now, this is the wedding banquet that Jesus talked about. And it is always going on. And you and me and everybody and all creation with us, we are always invited. And we can't earn or lay claim to our place at the table. We can only receive it as a gift. So with holy humility... Let us approach God's table together and receive the communion, the deep connection and love that we are truly hungry for. Amen.